first of all, Antonis, thank you for doing this. Um, pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, for people tuning in, listening, um, I'm hoping you wouldn't mind giving a little brief description of kind of who you are and what you're doing at the moment. Sure. Um, so I'm Antonis Kosoulis. I'm director at the Mental Health Foundation. Um, so I oversee our uh, uh, research and our uh, services and policy work uh, across England and Wales. Um, I've been with the foundation for about four years. I'm a public health doctor by background. Um, the foundation is a 70-year-old charity. So It's been going uh, since the 1940s, is it? 1949, yeah. Wow. So uh, about as uh, old as the NHS and one of the oldest mental health charities in the world. Uh, but uh, we are really focusing on uh, preventing problems and policy change and looking at the whole structures of society when it comes to mental health. So we take a very holistic approach. Okay. When you say holistic, because we've been speaking obviously before this podcast, it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. Obviously, you know, I'm in music. Um, I've been involved with all sorts of dramas with mental health going on. I was fascinated by what you said in terms of, well, two things that you said. Number one was this concept mm. of prevention and two, when you say holistic, because I'm trying my best to understand as much as I can about this. And when you talk about prevention, what is it that comes to mind first when it comes to preventing this stuff? I wouldn't have thought it's necessarily a preventable thing, if that makes sense. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that this is a common uh, misconception that we carry as a society um, and it is probably a symptom of the fact that we never really understood mental health and mental illness until maybe the last 10 or 20 years with really increasing our understanding um, so we thought that mental illness is something you are born with um, mm -hmm. so you have some kind of deficiency in the brain and it means that some people are born like that and others are not and it's just a matter of luck and genes and biology um, but we the evidence now is overwhelming that this is not the case um, and just to just to cut in there so there isn't really a genetic or biological predisposition so there is a predisposition uh -huh. but we are not if you like victims of our genes so we are not right. born ill um, and to a large extent uh, our uh, biology interacts with our environment and uh, the, our experiences and the stuff that we are exposed to mm -hmm. that could be a risk to our mental health and this is how, how we develop mental health problems. So some people have a predisposition and that makes them more vulnerable if you like from a genetic perspective from a biological perspective um, but um, th there has to be an environmental aspect, there has to be you know, an experiential um, element to it. Am I right in Drawing the conclusion that um, you, the is what you're saying that the biological elements that have an effect are they at least understood fairly well at this point? So you're saying that there is a genetic and biological aspect, but you understand them enough to say, hey, that's not really the key player here. It's a lot more to do with your social environment, the way you were brought up. That's kind of what we're getting at. We do we do understand them enough. We don't necessarily we're not necessarily able to pinpoint you know specific genes to specific conditions. Mm -hmm. So there is some research around that, um, but we are able to say that um, you have to have this combination of, of factors. Uh, so we do um, understand that, and and I think the moment you start taking this approach and understanding what that means, then you say, oh, actually, if there is an environmental element to it, that means potentially we, if we stop that, mm -hmm. some people would not develop those mental health problems. So this is where, where prevention comes into play. Okay. Do you have an example of that? I'm struggling to get my head around what yes. you mean by that. 
Yeah, so um, there is um, a growing, uh, if you like, trend and, and conversation in, in our sector about how a lot of mental illness is actually a symptom of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you see someone who uh, works in a job that has a lot of um, demands and they have very little control uh, over this job and maybe there is uh, bullying happening at the same time in the workplace, they uh, you can immediately understand high levels of stress uh, for that person. So they if they stay at these high levels of stress for some time um then they might develop you know what we call anxiety which is more a more sort of clinical term um so a person who is exposed to this stress the stress interacts with their genetic predisposition it might trigger a gene it might um express a gene in a different way mm-hmm. it might uh impact on some uh, of the structures in our in our brain and this will respond by providing some symptoms of anxiety or depression or or, or whatever else so it's that interplay between stress is, is a usual example but it, it's quite a key one sort of in this case interplay between stress and our biology okay there was something you said there about the control factor which is something i've been thinking about a while and again you can kind of tell me whether i'm on the right lines there but are you maybe alluding to that when people are in these environments where they're under particular like large amounts of stress the factor of control might be really really important for example if someone is under quite a lot of stress because they're working and achieving things that they're relatively in control of that might be quite different to someone who is exhibiting similar levels of stress but they actually don't have fundamental control of what they're achieving like maybe is that something am i getting that right is that important this this is an important factor especially when you think about the workplace um and and people's uh, jobs more generally mm. um but also in our day-to-day lives you know covering our fundamental needs um you know if we have control over um you know are we able to put food on the table for tomorrow you know for our kids or whatever mm-hmm. else uh, or do we need to count each pound you know until it gets us to the end of the month um this is a very different sort of life situations but i think in uh, when we think about creative industry and think about you know musicians and and others um i mean w- what's your experience i think th- this level of display between stress and control and unpredictability i think yeah. it, th- that must be quite strong isn't it i i mean it fascinates and terrifies me mm. like on a on a very personal level um there is a beauty i think in being uh on my own independent um i have friends in major labels and i think this element of control is something that i find quite fascinating because yeah, it's not an easy job, but I'm also very grateful for it. It's a, it's an amazing job to have. In those periods of my career where you start to enter the unknown, where maybe you're doing things and you're working towards a goal, but the things that you're doing aren't manifesting the things you would expect them to. Yeah. There's a real disparity that happens. Like, and and maybe not just with musicians, but that is something that I've felt before. Um, I think I'm quite blessed really in a way that i ha- i haven't personally been too affected by uh, mental illness I've, mm. I've have plenty of people around me that have which isn't statistically surprising i'm sure um but that's why the first thing that that's hooked me and, and when i listen to you talk and i listen to you explain this stuff this is kind of why i wanted to do it because this element of control is really important particularly in music obviously that's my background but 
you know to the wider community i think that that's a really big thing that we're not uh maybe not understanding or maybe not respecting and for example when i've done my limited amount of research here because i'm i'm i've I kind of just gone over some rough rough things i'm i'm also fascinated by the relationship of relative poverty to depression you know you take really uh struggling areas and you can even extrapolate out to third world countries and and it seems like depression is being bred in these um what's the word i'm looking for like in these affluent grounds almost do you know what does that make sense it's like in a more middle class society to upper class societies it seems to be more prevalent as i learn and understand more about it which the whole thing confuses the hell out of me so this is not entirely true uh, so okay. I'll, ha- I'll have to <laughs> i'll have to challenge that uh, sort of in a positive way because the, the the research on you you know on the whole of mental illness. So if you take depression, you take yeah. anxiety, you take schizophrenia, you know things that a lot of people understand less well. Um, there is what we call I'll use some jargon here the social gradient. So social gradient is that um, in each step of let's let's take the UK example. You know we have these indices of uh, deprivation. Uh-huh. So there are sort of ten. Uh, um, steps for example right um, so with each step of this index that you go up to less fewer people actually experience um, mental illness it's the same in depression anxiety and, and, and all of the all of the kinds of uh, mental and health forgive problems. me the index you're, you're saying was from 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 what to what sorry so so say from one to ten uh-huh. um, o- on a scale of of not exhibiting um, of, on a scale of being quite of, of being in in poverty mm-hmm. to a scale of being you know in a very affluent you know, part of a very affluent community yeah, yeah. so you see um uh, the, the more you're moving towards poverty the more we're seeing these stats bigger numbers of people experience mental health problems oh wow so, so it's actually, totally so it's actually the opposite and and there are various explanations for that but you know that this this sort of poverty and social inequalities is a be really big, big driver of of mental illness these days why do you think that is is that purely down to financial pressures so um financial pressures is is one uh so that that fundamental day-to-day stress Mm -hmm. of just you know getting things done with with limited means um so this is quite quite important um the second one is access to various, you know, what we would say protective or, or you know, positive things for our mental health that is mm-hmm. quite limited if you don't have the means. Um, the third is is that if you look at um, uh, poor, poorer communities, if you look at um, uh, communities that don't have the same access to income and savings and things like that, they tend to concentrate in neighborhoods that are also, um, you know, maybe less well uh, looked after, um, and these are the neighborhoods also that um, where we see more violence, where you see, where we see more um, uh, unrest, and violence is linked to experience of trauma. So if you're a victim of violence, if you're in a neighborhood that you witness violence, um, this uh, brings trauma, and trauma is again a huge factor uh, contributing to mental health problems. So it's a combination of factors that we would call environmental, if you like, you know, are related to where you live and and sort of what kind of means you have. Hmm. going to what you you were saying before about the sheer length of time you've been doing this um obviously across england and wales you're looking at all regions in the uk you're trying to understand the statistics of where these main problems are you know since the 1940s this this organization's been doing what it's doing why such a huge increase I mean, maybe there's some simplistic answers and I don't want to just jump on the bandwagon mm. of 
social media or sure. xyz but from your knowledge and your understanding why do you feel that there is such a heavy amount of panic and worry and concern happening now yeah. in this space there are two schools of thought on this um i should say so one is that mental health problems have not increased but we understand them better we talk more about uh, these you know we record them better um and that, so when it's you sort say of an we record them increase. better so you've said that they haven't necessarily increased over this time how do we measure that i mean so that, that that's the challenge of this school uh-huh. of thought because um data were not as you know good quality 70 years ago or 150 years ago or whatever else compared to to um what they are now um so this is one um, uh, element of that. Um, we usually tend to just measure uh, how many people you know, have mm. a diagnosis. So this is the most usual kind of um, record that we have. Uh, this is what's measured in the NHS, it's, it's what's measured in, in, in health systems mm-hmm. uh, internationally. Um, but at the same time, there are some um, surveys and some studies that are conducted over time and these actually show that certain groups have seen increases in mental health problems which uh, cannot be justified just by uh, recording issues. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, we've talked before about girls and young women, which is the, the, the group at the moment that sees the, the most rapid and, and most sort of dramatic increase in mental health problems. I think that's another misinterpretation from me. I mean, part of this talk, uh, part of what spawned this talk was hearing the statistic that I think suicide was the biggest killer of men between 18 and 35. That, that was something really shook me to my core. I thought, no, that, that can't be real. I remember when I, we spoke on the phone initially and you said, well, okay, it's a problem with men, but this was an even deeper problem that you're saying that now mm. something that's not necessarily that wide, widely known is this really strong kind of horrifying trend with young women that's happening right now. Yes, no, that that's right. Um we're not, um, th- there are some interpretations of why suicide is more common among men. Um, and, um, you know, some of the explanations are that, um, uh, you know, men are maybe more likely to complete suicide, but mm. suicidal thoughts actually probably more common in women. Um, and um, so, you know, suicidal ideation, as we say. Um, a second factor might be, you know, a hugely protective factor for our mental health is sharing our emotions you know and talking about our, yeah, our emotions yeah. and for men this is you know we are brought up with boys don't cry and you know if mm. you talk about your emotions that's weakness and things like that so this sort of leads to those points of despair mm. for many men um where sometimes women have better access to that protective element of conversation and it might sound simplistic but it is quite fundamental i yeah and i can see that for sure i mean with what i do I spend a lot of time on my social media connecting with fans and supporters around the world. That's part of what I consider, you know, a really big, important part of what I'm doing. And I've got to say, you know, statistically, I have kind of about 60% female, 40% male listeners uh, and, and in my in my demographic. Yeah. And I have, unfortunately, had some messages that have come through from people who are really in trouble. It's always women that who have, who have expressed it and said, hey, look, I'm struggling you know, I feel lucky that they have an outlet and, and you know, without kind of putting too much pressure on you, but like I, I also mm-hmm. struggle to, and for maybe a lot of people listening, kind of struggle on how to approach that when someone does open up and say, hey, you know, look, I've been going through a really rough time. I might be having these thoughts. Um, that's a tricky thing, but, but you know, 
it's never men. men men and you think about statistically i know how many messages i get on this matter yeah. it's, it, guys just don't don't do it they don't reach out they don't throw that yeah. rope out um but yeah, I suppose that's just because we're useless yeah. at communicating. No, exactly. Yeah, and then it's a combination of of these factors. Mm. You know, the women are more likely to reach out, and um, they're actually it's, the problems are mm. a little bit more common as well. So it's a combination of these, I would imagine. Yeah. And what what do you suggest that people do? Like, if people have had someone reach out to them, if someone has discovered that someone's struggling in that particular way, it's a, a very difficult situation to find yourself in. And I've got to be honest, I. I obviously worry, but I don't know what the best thing to do is with someone like that. I don't know whether responding and opening up a dialogue is necessarily the best thing. Do you know what I mean? It's it's yes. tricky. Yeah, I understand that. Um, one of the reasons that for us more broadly in our society this is tricky is because we've never been taught to talk about these things and mm. have these conversations. Uh, it's actually quite good to be able to have that conversation. So even if um, you're unsure, you know, or, or anyone um, listening and thinking about how could I support someone, um, I just, just try to have a chat. Um, acknowledge, you know, how the other person is feeling and that you are there for them and mm. that, um, you know, it is important that they have opened up, that they've shared something. Um, so that this is a hugely important first step for someone who is struggling and, and mm. suffering you know the fact that they will not be shamed they will not be stigmatized but on the other line on the other end of the line or on the other end of you know the social there's media comment, there's, there's there is, actually something yeah. that's yeah, yeah okay i understand um, that but more generally i think you know i would encourage people to not try to necessarily play you know the expert you know there are you know crisis mm. lines or you know samaritan's line is is quite um commonly referred but that's where i refer lines. to and yeah. so that's probably a good yeah. place because i i find it an extremely difficult position to be in as an artist i make music i am not yeah. experienced in that field i you know and um and this is why i think it, i think this is why it hits a little deeper than most subjects because when i have these conversations with people and you know sometimes people turn to music don't they when they when they're going through these tough times i just get so what's the best way of putting it i get um i get bothered by the amount i get bothered by the amount of people reaching out and i and it's a big driver to doing this and um obviously and thanking you for, for coming and doing this because i wanted to have some kind of a platform where we can just dive in and dig in a little bit and just try yeah. and Try and understand it a little bit more. I mean, already I'm learning tons from you and I have 101 questions that are sitting in the back of my mind. But as we start to go into what you're saying earlier about about women, and I'm assuming we're talking young women. Yeah. I'm assuming we're, we're talking about relations with online bullying. Yeah. This this is something that we can quite clearly point the finger to social media or... Um, Partly. Um, so social media, the, the difference that they've made um, are, I think, you know, indisputable in some um, cases. So one thing is, uh, you know, for example, body image. You yeah. know, social media has fundamentally changed what we mean by the word image, right? Mm. The very word image is, means something completely different today than it meant, you know, 20 years ago. Mm. Um, cyberbullying is, is a well, not entirely new, but, you know, we didn't what have that, that before. Cyberbullying. Oh, cyberbullying, uh, so, yes, yeah. Some you know, um, uh, some girls or, or or boys that are bullied at home. Sometimes it doesn't st at, at uh, school. Sometimes it doesn't stop. Mm. Uh, it just carries on uh, online. So some of these things because are they quite can't new. escape it anymore. No. Like yeah. there's no escape from from getting away from that. Yeah. And 
I don't know whether I'm I'm looking at things again in an overly simplistic way, but at least when I was younger, guys had a tendency to like get in a fist fight, like get that physical aggression out. And with women, as I learn more about it, it's just it's really it's really much more vindictive, isn't it? Like it's a lot more psychologically based warfare. Like it's pretty horrible stuff that goes on with girls in particular. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Uh, it comes back to how, um, and this may be a little bit stereotypical, but it mm. it actually come back to the to how different genders express mm. emotions. So anger and aggression, it's quite a usual way for men to express other emotions that they don't really understand, yeah. that they hide inside. Um, whereas for women, they might be more direct, you know, as you say, more vindictive. So it, it might be it might be that kind of expression of, of mm. distress or, or of other kind of annoyance that it just emerges like that. And when we kind of consider the parallel that social media has to play, and again, from the outside looking in, it seems to me, like social media has created this really peculiar fabric now where like we say we can't really escape it i mean i live through my phone i'm on my phone all the time and and i see you know four or five year olds now walking around with ipads like we we're we've become bionic they're almost an extension of our minds and i wonder what our future is in a attempting to control that and deal with that in terms of your preventative measures and understanding of what's going on um, or B, just kind of acknowledging the fact that that is just part and parcel now of how we're going to evolve and, and hopefully we evolve to deal with it. You know, I've got kind of different varying school of thoughts all the time. Sometimes I think, well, is it going to be like smoking? Are we going to have like bans on yeah. the amount of time that people apply to social media? Is it going to be a case where, I don't know, maybe algorithmically stuff like Facebook, stuff like Instagram can be better at, at diagnosing people potentially at risk by the manner in which they use it there's a lot of complicated things that i'm trying to like rationalize in my mind about the future of what's happening here i mean th- these are all great thoughts it's i wouldn't have one single answer to those mm. um the the fact of the matter is that these are you know f- smartphones social media they're here to stay mm. um they are um globally you know dominating you know industries that are, are hugely influential in dominating the way that we live our day-to-day lives it's unlikely that we'll be able to uh, you know achieve major influence on changing that um, what we might be able to achieve is a little bit more regulation on the stuff that are really harmful um, so and what do you mean so by controlling that? controlling uh, and protecting people who are vulnerable online and expressive vulnerability online um, exposure to harmful content so images that may be harmful or triggering or mm. traumatic um, but this is a tricky one too yeah. and and the reason why I say that is because I'm split I'm really split on this idea um, I deal in some respect with digital marketing like I kind of understand some basics of how this stuff works and and I had someone called uh, Corinne Campbell on the podcast, the first episode actually I, I did, and we were discussing how algorithmic curation of people's news feeds is is the norm now, right? You know, so like people are going to have these curated news feeds they're going to go through. And as as kind of weird as it is to say, I worry about the deeper problem that we might start to manifest in society by having this curation process of things that people see yeah i don't know really how to put it in words properly like i haven't really kind of solidified this concept but like do, do you know what i mean it's like if we're yeah. now going to say okay 
I'm going to now judge what I think is harmful to you. I'm mm-hmm. going to repress things that could be potentially trigger triggering. And I'm going to make sure that your world that you exist in is always lovely and it's always perfect. Nothing's going to go wrong. Nothing's going to harm you. That sounds logically brilliant. It's like, well, obviously yeah. this is the sort of environment you want to bring up. But I mean, are you a parent? Do you have kids? No, but you know, I, I completely understand what you mean. Um, because I mean, I, I don't know. either, but I, I do know that when my parents brought me up, yeah. their their first thought wasn't to make sure that I was like as protected as possible. Mm. It was like, right, go and go and do dangerous shit and and sometimes things are going to go wrong you're going to be exposed to things you don't like and that's part of understanding your wider um your wider knowledge base to deal with the real world so i don't know i mean i'm throwing a lot at you but is is there a potentially deeper problem with this idea of suppressing potentially harmful content i i agree with that um and i think there will always be um bumps on the road there will always be you know, failures, you know, we will always fail an exam, we'll always get into, um, you know, companies that might not be the best influence of us or, or, or whatever else. But um, the where th- there needs to be some kind of a line. And I think this is what we're missing at the moment. Um, one of the things that I have a problem with, and especially if you look, you know, in our conversation about girls and young women, um, they are exposed 24-7 to imagery and and you know promotion um from multiple industries right that try to constantly take advantage of all their insecurities to sell products Mm. this is you know this is one contributing factor to um why we see those mental health stresses and and problems um so yes there will be you know, girls and boys as well, you know, will always have insecurities. You know, they will, we will always care about, you know, how we look and, and how our bodies are and, and things like that. We will always be stressed about our friends or anything like that in our, in our exams. Um, but you, we are putting, you know, potentially 15-year-old girls, you know, whatever, teenagers, um, university students up against big industries that... The, one of the main things they're doing is just taking advantage of insecurities. And I think this is, these are areas where we need to draw a line. I, I, I do agree with that. It's, it is strange. And I, I even remember feeling that even when I was really quite young. It's like everywhere you look, it's like photoshopped times 10. Everything is plastic. It feels strange. You know, um, the thing that is going to be almost the impossible mountain to climb with that is if we're going to have the freedom to to have this kind of capitalist free market how do we combat the fact that businesses that market like that who exploit insecurities like that because you're you're totally right and i agree it's like it's it's really simple exploit insecurities and tell people how this product can make it better and it's horrendous and and obviously women are taking the the brunt of that and definitely more so men i've started to notice at least uh, i mean i I've, sure. I've definitely felt personally like a little bit more of a pressure now um because you can see that growing but but how do we have both like what what do you think the mechanisms could be what are some ideas maybe to to look at big business and say okay we've got to have some middle ground here because at the moment we're way on the wrong side of the spectrum how do we start to bring that needle a bit more Uh, i think there is um sometimes a, you know a, a desire to oversimplify certain things and mm. you know i'm i'm a public health doctor i would like 
everyone to make mental health their business and really fight for good mental health. That's not going to happen. Mm. And I understand that there are industries and businesses that um, have to make profit. And you know, this is how our world is shaped. So before we revolutionize everything, um, we need to start from trying to secure certain wins. You know, at the very least, could we increase diversity in you know advertising? Mm. Could we increase? Could we? Could we diversify? How you know what kind of bodies we have? There, what kind of you know minorities are presented? Um, could we approach conversations in a different way? Could we use different language? Mm. You know, we often use um, you know language that you know is exploitative or is um, sometimes we use mental health terms. Um, we we use stress a lot. We use breakdown a lot. You know, words like that. Um, so could we start changing some of these? quite fundamental but maybe smaller elements of that mm. and um and and make this you know a point of of change um and i think there is uh we did this um uh, survey last year you know around body image and one of the key negative influences that that came up in our survey was um uh, images in fashion and yeah, understandable. It's just, let, I mean, I, I, I won't say they've come to the 21st century. You know, I don't yeah. think that uh, girls, you know, and women want to see, want to look at perfectly shaped models to buy clothes anymore. I think, mm. I think, we, you know, we, we're way past that. You know, really, you, we, fashion needs to follow suit with the times. You know, there's the, there are levels of activism these days and and discussions that are much more sophisticated than uh, what you know they think is is still the case so this is would this would be my starting point i mean you you work in a more much more commercial space than i do so i'm not sure what sort of, you know your view is more generally on that well i mean first firstly i think what you're doing is is great work and that's part of why i wanted to connect with you anyway personally because i think look the fact that you're going out there that you were starting to instigate these changes the fact that you're looking across England and Wales and, and taking a systemic viewpoint in this and going, okay, well, where are the key parts in this process from someone essentially being born, being influenced, having potential genetic mm-hmm. de- uh, dispositions and ending up on the wrong end of mental health? So I love the the kind of approach you're taking here. And, and I just think that you have an impossible job almost. Kind of why I'm fascinated by it because... Because... I want to understand it more and I want to get my head into it more and I want to do the, the most I can to try and selfishly get my head around it. But importantly, the people in my tribe and the people in my network and the supporters of my music who, who come, I, I want to try my best to do my part and start by talking about it. But sometimes I get this horrendous feeling that is this going to be the new norm now? Is depression going to escalate in the death toll of of men young men are we going to see bullying getting more and more rife are we going to try and fix the problem by doing some of these measures by suppressing content maybe and in turn open up pandora's box by creating more problems so it's it's a twofold thing for me it's it's fascination mixed with with being concerned about the future so i I feel i have to make this point right if you if you look at um, all these health issues that we consider common. Mm. Um, so I'll give you some stats. Um, take how many people experience asthma. Um, it's uh, probably about a one in 12. Um, how many people experience diabetes? Maybe one in 16. Um, how many people have dementia? One in 66, I think, or something like that. One in 66 people yeah. have dementia? Um, yeah. So that's that's a particularly personal one because my granddad he he passed because mm. of dementia and it does run in our family so I'm yeah. kind of 
quite hyper aware of all the things I can do in my sure, life to step away sure. from that. But sorry to take off topic. Yeah. So you, no, but that, that's it's a good point. It's a mm. good point because dementia is also linked uh, quite often to to mental health, and a lot of mm. the things that are protective for our mental health are also protective um, against dementia, like you know how we um, eat and and our exercise and our creativity and learning and and, and apparently uh, being bilingual is a really big factor. It, it is protective. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a, it's a good factor. And do we understand? I mean, I know we're slightly off topic there, but. <laughs> is do we understand the mechanisms? Because I'm fascinated by that. You're saying if you're someone who's bilingual, your chances of experiencing or uh, dementia are, you know, are plummeting. It's it's about, in, in simple terms, it's about training our brain and keeping our, our brain growing and learning and, and not staying, you know... Um, Stagnant. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, this is what's usually protective against dementia. And there is, there is a also around the fact there's a genetic factor and i'm not saying that en- everyone who who you know uh eventually got to mention that they were not doing anything right mm. or whatever but you know there is a ra- an argument for as i said before you know where we live you know our, there yeah. are circumstances how do they allow us to do all these things that are protective well i'm, and, I'm sorry to take you off topic because you were saying about <laughs> the statistics you're saying about the asthma you were saying about yeah. the yeah so if you if you think about some of these you know and, and cancer that we we talk a lot about cancer these days and there used to be a stigma but we talk a lot about cancer these days about one in 25 people right so mental health problems are one in six every week wow so this this kind of rate is unacceptable in all other areas of health now, to throw a spanner in your works, mm. when it comes to mental health, and forgive me if I'm just, you know, a little bit, just get, getting the wrong end of the stick here, but it's a bit more spectral, isn't it? It's like, for example, you talk about cancer, you talk about diabetes, it's like, okay, here is a diagnosis. You have mm. this condition, we can see it. But with, with mental health, it's a little bit of a wider spectrum. And, and would it be unfair to say that the diagnoses might be a little bit more, you know, wide? There are serious limitations and problems with the diagnostic framework, as we say in mental health, you know, how we decide on a diagnosis, how is it set, how it is defined. And I'm sure people are wondering the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's just like, okay, I have a friend or maybe I'm depressed myself. It's like, well, depression is a very, very uh, relative term, isn't it? And it's and at what point do you draw that line in the sand yeah. and go, okay, this is actually a clinical um a clinical uh, diagnosis. This is a, a really important point um, that you're making. I think that the whole point of the spectrum and, and the you know subjectivity of, of the experience, um, there is, in clinical terms, there, there are, you know, maybe cutoff points and on certain questionnaires that you can answer, you know, or, mm. or um, certain scales that we follow. Um, but we, it's important to be able to differentiate between low mood and depression, yeah. you know, stress and anxiety. Um, what? Okay, yeah. on that note, and I'm sorry, I keep no. interrupting you. When you say the differences between stress and anxiety, you're, there's always this clear barrier when you talk about this. How do you define them? The, we all understand feeling low. Mm. We all understand being stressed. When you think about the the clinical condition, like generalized anxiety disorder, as we say, you know, or or um, or, or depression. Um, it's the same with everything, I should say. You know, it's the same uh, when you think about psychosis. We all have some paranoid ideas. You know, we all have, you know, uh, thinking of certain things. This this doesn't make it doesn't makes us. You know, it doesn't put us in this category of uh, experiencing psychosis. So it's it's across the whole spectrum. There are there are differences. Um, mental health problems. Their definition is based on adding a level of disability. 
um, essentially. So, and then you you run into tricky waters when you're trying to define that also. Uh, everything everything is tricky waters in mental health, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. because there is no single biological test that can take into account the whole range of human experience and distress. Of it's course, not yeah. you know this is your biomarker for cancer. Take you know do this blood test. We'll know if if you're positive or not. Um, it's much more complex because it's related to the human experience. Mm. Um, but uh, people who experience clinical depression or clinical anxiety would have a level of disabling factors in their day-to-day lives. You know, they might not want to go out, you know, just pick an example. They might not be able to get out of bed. Mm. Um, you know, it's the same with OCDs. You know, we might like some things tidy. This doesn't mean that, you know, we, we experience um, obsessive compulsive disorder. So um, for some people, this is really disabling. You know, they cannot really operate in, in the way that they would like. They wouldn't, they could not be there, there you know, f- see their full potential. And that's the fundamental line in the sand yeah. is yeah. when you say, okay, this is now no longer feeling low. You are now actually incapable of doing anything or, or okay maybe that's too far but you're now seeing a genuine effect on your life and an inability, yeah. inability to do things um for example i know people who are who are agoraphobic and which is a very it was tough for me to get my head around it mm. um i think i understand a little bit more about that mechanism now but um i found it strange to see what happened to this person when they were validated almost by this kind of diagnosis and again i i that's not me i'm trying to avoid um i'm trying to avoid being insensitive about this because this is like someone who's really close to me but the point is is sometimes there does seem to be this validation that people take from going okay no i've been diagnosed now and and maybe there's a vital element of just getting that disparity between the diagnosis and the person it's like look that might be a diagnosis yeah. uh, but you can't what am i trying to say it's it becomes tricky when i feel that some people really connect and use this as a as a real crutch sometimes when yeah. I, I wish that they could focus more on on making sure that their diagnosis doesn't rule them sure i mean one important factor is that um Quite often, diagnosis in, in mental health comes a little bit late. Mm. Um, so people experience symptoms that we don't always understand, you know, as we said, uh, for some time before they get to a point of, of receiving a diagnosis. So sometimes mm. diagnosis can be quite liberating because it gives you words to express, mm. you know, your, your symptoms, to express, you know, what you've been feeling. Um, and, and maybe this is the case, you know, in some, in some of the uh, examples you mentioned. Um, and the great thing about that example is that is that communicating wasn't a problem and that was yeah. the best part of of figuring out a solution we spoke about it a lot and actually she was strong enough to to kind of climb out of that on, on, mm-hmm. on her own two feet and then it didn't end up um didn't end up being life debilitating yeah. but obviously for others this isn't the case yeah and and you know from from the way you express it, it sounds like you were a really good protective you know and supportive factor maybe others want to have you know that kind of a friend or, or support in their environment to to go through that together when we experience these quite complicated feelings in isolation mm. it, it essentially the brain interprets this experience in the same way that it interprets trauma so it can be it can become a traumatic experience if you are feeling, you know, excessively low or stressed or you know, agoraphobic or whatever else, and you don't have anyone to share this with. So you're saying that the isolation is like a multiplying effect. Yeah. And you use the word trauma. Um, that's something like, why, why do you, what, what do you mean by that? So you're saying you could be exhibiting a social situation 
as a group and communicating that's fine but then in isolation this becomes a, a, a legitimate trauma to that person yes so the 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 notion of psychological trauma is quite well um established in in psychiatry and mental health more generally um the in a, a traumatic experience and that could range from you know experience of abuse to being in a car accident you know mm. traumatic car accident or, 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 or anything in between um does have a, a immediate and lasting impact on how we look at certain things you know how we interpret certain things how we compose ourselves and how we how we how we behave mm. um, because it directly impact on certain parts of the brain that regulate our behavior um, so um, it could be and and some of this some of the research po- points to that um, that when we experience these um, uh, you know risks or symptoms in isolation the brain interprets interprets in the same way that they interpret for example abuse or, mm. or they interpret violence or um an accident so this this kind of traumatic experience yeah that's pretty deep i didn't realize that which is why there's some element of hope with well okay maybe it's maybe it's not good to say some element of hope with social media necessarily but um but maybe that connection is going to have a lot of silver linings for example with the work you do obviously kind of a charity and and you're kind of going into these places and and when you look at your when you look at the uh, your 2020 which obviously we're just starting and you look at the year uh, prior what are the things that you feel have been most effective in your organization when when you've been looking at trying to get the systemic root of this problem down what do you think's working and what do you think needs to be really doubled down on yeah so one of the things that's really important in mental health is um activism uh, and i say it in the sense of um giving a strong voice to people who have lived experience mm. um and this is hugely important in our area because there is this you know persistent misunderstanding of mental health problems um so when you um help people get a voice on uh, their own condition their own experience and you do things with them as mm. opposed to them um this um, leads to more thoughtful legislation or better designed services, services that serve the needs of people who actually use them. Um, okay. so these are, and then, and forgive me yeah. again for jumping in, but you said that uh, you know, there's, you said something about the common misconceptions that play a part when you're actually mm-hmm. trying to handle this problem. Like, just tell me a little bit about that. What are the main misconceptions that you feel are problematic when you're when you're going down this route of solving the issues? So, you know, it depends on how far back we're going. Mm. Uh, you know, mental health, as, as I've told you before, is has been misunderstood for centuries. Um, we're just coming out of this, essentially. Um, we used to lock people up, you know, and mm. we thought if we don't see them, maybe maybe they don't exist and I'm fine. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite a dramatic history um, that doesn't exist in any other area of health. There are other areas of health that have been stigmatized, but not to that extent. Yeah. Um, so some of the things that are misunderstood are certain symptoms. So how you develop some of these, for example, psychotic symptoms. Um, suicidal thoughts are still not really well understood by many people. Um, they, do not, they cannot really get their head around why a person would want to take their own life. Um, so um, other things are 
the causes of mental health problems. Um, we we tend to be dominated by a medical model that tries to f- interpret everything in in terms of what happens in your body, mm. whereas there's this huge range of influences. You know, as as we've said in our in our, in our environment. Um, so uh, also we associate mental illness quite often with weakness or with um, maybe some poor behaviors or people are all responsible for their actions, you know, especially if you think about uh, addictions as well, you know, mm. when you think about alcohol and drug addictions. Um, and things are not that simple, things are much more complicated. Um, and, these, and these are factors that are really starting to stifle your your work when it comes to the most effective ways of dealing with it in these in these recent years yeah. and because i kind of took you off off track again there but the the most effective things that you're seeing what what do you feel they are so involving involvement is huge it's hugely important um legislation i think changes in policy we need we need to uh, look into that we know where, where we we've seen changes in policy you know trying to uh, and even things like minimum wage or things like you know regulating the hours that people work and and mm. um, um, policies in the workplaces like protecting against bullying and, and discrimination and these these are things that you're that you are actively yeah going and attacking I mean yes. I've, I've spent a lot of time in um, spent a lot of time in Holland I uh, lived in Amsterdam mm. um, kind of on and off for three years and I've got to say they they definitely have a culture which is quite heavily predisposed to to part-time work it's not really that common to have like a full full full-time job and i was astounded by just the general level of happiness like i mean maybe i don't know i don't know whether that's something that um is more to do with our our outlook of productivity sometimes like being english and all that uh but that's something that i never really would have considered had you not said that so when you're looking at this you're not necessarily just going okay how do we look at people and their diagnosis and people stuff suffering with whether that's paranoia whether that's depression you're actually going how does minimum wage affect things how does the hours that you work affect things maybe you know for example my partner's on night shifts at the moment in in the nhs i don't know how and it's the same way i have friends in the police as well like when you see these you see these these guys and girls who who are expected to just switch their complete circadian rhythm around and then go and do a week, you know, like on the streets of Hackney, mm. and they're supposed to be aware and aware. And you just think, wow, like how how is that playing a part? And how do you come out the other side of that? Yeah. Even in a situation where you're actually dealing with real traumas, I mean, some of the stories, I'm, you know, I just think, yeah, how are you not? <laughs> how are you still sane? It's it's yeah. a real. I get how complicated and difficult the this is for sure. Yeah. I mean, the, these are all, you know, very valid points, and I think there, there's a case to be made about um, sleep. You know, quantity mm. and quality of sleep are hugely important. What what um, sort of guy are you? Are you, are you an eight hour guy? Or are you not really? No, and and you know, in fact, I'm not. I'm not a very good sleeper. Actually, it, it's been a, it's a chronic issue for me as well. So I completely understand. So when you say it's a chronic uh, issue, what you you just struggle to sleep um, in general? Yeah, wake up very easily, and uh, I I might not get to sleep until late. Mm. Um, so I'll. There, and then do you get worried of the fact that you're not sleeping because yeah. you're like, I yeah. know the literature, I yes. know that <laughs> I need to get my sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. so always saying five, six hours a night, <clears throat> something like that. Yeah. Oh man, I I struggle to function on, on. I don't know why, but I need to. I think I learned very early on that sleep is a really, really big factor because with what I do, if I'm not sleeping, my voice starts getting tired. I start getting they're just antsy uh, well, that's great yeah. that, you know well done this is mm. this is really important it's it's quite a neglected topic i can imagine because yeah. there's this there's this stigma especially in the industry that i'm from 
in fact it's not just the industry i'm from it's everyone has this hyper obsession with the grind you know yeah. and everyone maybe more so young people it's like they're seeing a lot of these influencers they're seeing a lot of people in business and they're just like right i'm gonna get up at four in the morning like hit the gym super hard yeah. go to bed at one in the morning because i'm up like working on my side hustle yeah. and it's just like yeah. i don't know it, i definitely definitely don't subscribe to that but i see people yeah. that do and you just see them just wrecking their their mentalities towards i know the, mo- the, the, most important the whole glamorizing of being able to function without having slept very mm-hmm. well which we should be doing the opposite <laughs> we should be celebrating people who sleep well um it's uh, you know it, it it's one of these fundamental biological it's not very needs. very glamorous, though, is it? <laughs> oh, I got eight hours of sleep last night. It's like rock and roll. I know. <laughs> when we talk about this, what what is it about having a really good night's sleep that you know? Because I'm assuming that the biology is understood at least at some point. Um, to an extent, first of all, we know that sleep is one of the fundamental, you know, things that we need to survive. Mm. Probably don't know why, but you know, if you think of what we need: air, water, food, mm. sleep. As far as we know, these are the only four things that determine if we survive or not. Um, so first of all, you have something quite fundamental. Um, second, you know that if you get a good night's sleep, you give your body the chance to to recover some of the, some of the stress mm-hmm. uh, of the day, to uh, sort of regulate its internal functions. Um, and um, we also know that our brain um, tends to operate better in the hours that we are expected to be awake. Understand. So, yeah, that makes sense. So from from a starting point, you know, in, in, in your line of profession, you see people who um, perform at nights and late nights and mm. things like that. This, this is already, you know, something that can be quite stressful uh, or something you know, that could be, you're adding a stress to your brain sometimes without even um, appreciating that. Yeah, I think actually when it comes to just my experiences, the worst is the adrenaline. Mm. Because it's the best thing, you know. Especially, I've just I just come back from Germany. Uh, I was on tour. Uh, I flew back on Sunday, and every night I was playing a new city. Crowds, of people yeah. love it. Going out, meeting people, just and you get so high off it, and you you kind of awake <laughs> through the night. You're enjoying it, and then you come back, and obviously I keep myself fairly busy, so it's, it's I'm not really complaining. But you come back, and once you lose that, and once your your biological clock's totally thrown out, and and your sort of circadian rhythms all messed up. Yeah, it's a cloud. Like I feel, yeah. I feel it. I'm very conscious of it. I try and take the time to focus on it because I, I feel it in my, in my soul. I feel this yeah. messy, cloudy, just yeah, it's horrible. And and I think that, um, I think that it's almost like a nice little point for me to kind of put my my skew in it. It's yeah. like with what I do, I think a lot of people look at it and go, oh, it's just got the best job in the world," and it, it's it's really really great. But it really, I can get smacked with these heavy waves and bouts mm. of just horrendous feeling. And I think that that's why I'm particularly interested in the dynamics of sleep. I'm particularly interested in the dynamics of diet because I know that the mornings when I get up early, get a bit of exercise in me, good night's sleep, when I'm eating well, I feel it. And I'm sure everyone, you know, people listening feel the same, especially as I start to research a little bit ahead of this talk and, and go into this paper about how your your kind of gut microbes that deal with inflammation in your body ha- they now have this this you know almost linear relationship to rates of of uh, depressive thoughts and uh, and there's now drawing these conclusions and, and you, maybe I'm maybe I'm getting the wrong end of the stick again but the conclusions that actually diet sugar inflammation in the body has this very direct relationship with with the level of your mental yeah. health 
It does, uh, you know, and you're making a great point. Uh, and I think the fact that you, for yourself, you know, you you appreciate that, this is quite important. Mm. Uh, you know, you appreciate the value of um, sleeping well or uh, you understand why you may not feel very well if you haven't had good sleep or, or good food or, or whatever else. But one mistake that we often make is that we try to separate you know, our mental health from our physical health, from our, you know, how our bodies work and, and mm. what's happening within our bodies. And we try to um, take mental health into a completely different realm of, of being something entirely separate. Um, and that's not true. You know, as you say, um, inflammation, stress, and, and also in the sense of physical stress, things like pain and, mm. and tiredness, um, these are intrinsically link, linked with um, our mental health and our emotions and, and how... Are we feeling, uh, you know, our our best selves? You know, can we perform at our best? Would it be too simplistic to say, well, our diet these days, especially sort of like Western culture, mm. I mean, it's very sugar heavy. Is this something that maybe isn't being considered enough? It's, it's like if we have a really heavy sugar-induced diet all the time, we're seeing this big correlation okay maybe i'm i'm a little bit misinformed there but we see this seemingly rising tide of of mental health issues this must be a strong factor that we need to raise awareness on maybe yeah it is an important factor it is um there are there's research that very clearly shows um if you um and actually it's more common for men you know if you are not eating well for you know very fast food sugary diets mm. for long periods of time you know higher rates of depression um and, and, and Wh- like why that. more common in men because we're less in tune with our diet than women uh, possibly um uh, if if you look at some of these studies are really interesting especially you know uh, studies looking into men who are single men who are um in couples you know women who are in couples women who are single mm. you see the worst outcomes are from men who are single or men who are separated yeah, I or get that. things like that yeah i can kind of get that yeah i mean yeah, I can I can totally understand that. I think that we sometimes what's the way what's the best way of putting this? Like I mean, look, I can be a slob sometimes. Sure. If I've got the house to myself and I'm and I've I'm there and I've got the beers in the fridge. Yeah, I get it. I like I got I I can go off the rails. I'm talking like big old slabs of chocolate, get the Ben and Jerry's like it's not good. And I think that maybe um Maybe at least the women I know in my circles are a lot more methodical and conscious mm. about about that. And blokes, I don't know, we're just a bit more <laughs> we're just, we're just terrible with that stuff. Totally, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, maybe that's a bit of a generalization. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure women can. But do it, the same. it is more common, you know. It, it it's not the case for everyone, mm. but it is it is more common, you know. And this is what um, research shows. Um, but we also have, I think, there's a case to be made about the link between um, mental health and. Uh, obesity more generally you know there's a lot of interest in obesity at the moment um there's an interest in obesity in the correlation to mental um, health not so much not so much uh but it is it is quite an interesting topic for me because um if you look at the various causes of obesity obesity that starts from overeating if you like for Mm. long periods of time um overeating is a form of coping um, it it could be similar for to some people, you know, drinking excessively mm. or or um, you know uh, any other drug addictions. Um, so there's a mental health component right there. So you have it, this is a response to your distress or stress or any other emotions you have. Mm. Um, also, there's something about 
obesity and how it is treated in our society, how it is perceived. Uh, people who are obese are, are perceived as lazy. They're perceived as really responsible for you know how they how they look and as, as failing to to look a certain way. Um, so again, a huge mental health component when we think about body image and when you think about um, the the impact of that. Um, so. We tend to say in public health that we live in a uh, another piece of jargon here, obesogenic environment. So an environment that really pushes us to to become obese because you go to the supermarket and, and right next to the till you have these chocolates or, or you go into the high street cafes and most of it, like 80% of the snacks are muffins yeah, and yeah. cakes and, and things like that. Um, and you're not really encouraged to eat healthily and and fast food is much cheaper than you know healthy food you can get burgers you know for for one pound uh for crying out loud so it's um there's there's a big connection so you so you see these problems obesity and mental health problems rising at the same time uh it's tricky isn't it because my brain's split in two i mean obviously it's your own responsibility and you have to try and take ownership of the things you do but i, I see exactly what you mean it's you know we're not all in that luxury position of having nutritional education. It's not something that that unless I think you're gonna you're gonna seek it out and understand it. Um and you're right, you know, you see the KFCs, you see the Burger Kings, you say the the ninety nine P McFlurries and Happy Meals, it's just like, well yeah. yeah. And 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 if you don't happen to have that that um that toolbox of knowledge, of course you're gonna be jamming yeah. yourself full of four thousand calories a day, times that by five years and and yeah. and you know, is there I'm assuming that over the years there's always been campaigns, there's always been pressure, there's there's been sugar taxes, there's been all sorts. I mean, people are going to fundamentally they're gonna they're gonna enjoy their addictions, aren't they? I mean, I I believe I'm clinically like addicted to sugar, for example. <laughs> like, and I I say that as half joke, but like I'm being sincere. Like I I almost like need sugar each yeah. day, and I realize I'm like, holy shit! Like, I, I actually can't yeah. curb this. It's my guilty pleasure. I, I understand what you mean. But look you at you, you're yeah. slim, you're yeah. exercising. Well, you as well, but it's well, just, I don't know, getting a few pounds a- since Christmas. <laughs> but but, yeah. it, but it's a tough one, isn't it? Because yeah. I have the toolkit. I, I'm relatively knowledge. Like, I have yeah. enough knowledge to know that this stuff's bad for me. But that thing in my mind, yeah. that that little kind of like chimp mechanism that goes right yeah time to go hunt for some sugar yeah it's yeah it's unbelievably powerful yeah it's a quick fix uh you know we we feel good for these you know few minutes uh it's easy to access um there's a much more powerful advertising industry behind it um yeah so, yeah, I get uh, it. so some of these things are subconscious they become subconscious yeah. for all of us you know no matter how well you know educated and, and alert you are they yeah. still become a little bit subconscious if you look at kids you know the, some of the children go to you know in a football team or, or or whatever else they go to play in the field and the advertising on the side is you know mcdonald's or or, mm. or anything else and so you are thinking um, everyone says you should exercise, so that's what I'm doing now, and because it's healthy for you. And while I'm doing this healthy thing, I see all these ads there. So this also, I'm associating this with something that's good and healthy for me. So, so you. I never thought of it like that. That's, growing, that's, exactly. So you're growing up with all these deep. conflicting messages. Yeah, that is. And it's difficult to avoid you, that. I mean, is that something that you think they actively do? Do you think that's something that McDonald's goes? Okay, I tell you what, guys, we can be a bit sneaky here. We can go and pay whatever the hell they want. We'll make sure we're at the Super Bowls. We'll make sure we're on the on the halftime shows. You think they're perf- like purposefully paying? whatever it costs to associate and align their brand with active all our all our evidence shows that they are um, the evidence from um tobacco industry which has been studied really yeah. well um well i watched the that, i watched yeah. the 
documentary recently about the uh I'm trying to remember the name the the vaping things mm. and they were doing the studies of like how how deep the psychological manipulation of placement yeah. of like marble for example would it, it's yeah. just yeah. next level the the depth that they yeah. think of how to screw and, with people it's nuts and when the evidence emerged about the fact that smoking is actually bad for you mm. you know in the 50s and 60s they the tobacco predominantly companies, by research done by the tobacco companies as well like they they had the jump didn't they when they when they yeah when when they, they started seeing that those stuff i think the uh which they were not necessarily uh we, we were not necessarily expecting at some point um there is a clear shift to advertising based on doubt mm. so from cigarettes to, being the yeah. product doubt becomes the product and they start undermining research they start undermining the evidence you know the we start seeing sentences like yeah i had i had a you know a granddad who was smoking his whole life and he died in his 90s so yeah. smoking must not be bad for you um it's the same with some of these industries as well and the impact on mental health you know th- there is a connection there there is a connection because these are harmful products jesus that's scary isn't it What's up, yes? Oh, has it? Oh, okay, cool. Thanks, thanks. Let us know. I mean, that's a that's a biggie. That's a biggie, and I and I've got to say that's that's quite a bombshell in my mind because I never really drew that link, but I have no doubt that they go to those levels for sure. That's that's pretty intense. So when it comes to things like um, whether it's sugar taxing, whether it's trying to change legislation about mm. nutritional information, do you think that? that can be the answer and to sort of kind of pose my question a little bit better if we employ these levies let's say we make burgers more expensive for example do you think in actual fact that it's always going to revolve down to the individual responsibility because people are just going to pay what they want to pay i mean you know if there was a massive chunk like chocolate out there and i was craving it i'd probably pay 20 quid for it (laughs) so i'm just like i'm just i'm gonna have it regardless do you think that 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 kind of systemic approach is gonna be productive in in what you're trying yeah. to do here well our evidence shows that it is you know mm. when you increase pricing and when you um give uh, certain incentives to to companies to reduce for example sugar levels and things like that consumption goes down um the there are two things for me uh from from a scientific perspective you know from the stuff that i've seen and done over the years um one we need to protect people from direct harm with mm. legislation and policy and second, we need to educate, you know, and, and inform them in in a way that is accessible and in language that everyone understands. Because not mm-hmm. everyone, you know, understands the same kind of, you know, language. And I don't mean language in the, you know, in the sense of um, from which country you are, but in the sense of how you consume your information. Yeah. So we have well, to in do a way both. that's kind of what we're yeah. trying to do here. Yeah. Is, yeah. Which, which trying to have a bit more of a kind of easier, pragmatic yeah. discussion about it. So once you do that, once you educate people, and once you also protect them from some direct harms. You, you know, as we said, we cannot just put everything under a, you know, a glass ball and, and or a dome and just say we'll protect you from everything. That's not mm. what 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 we can do. But you need that combination, and then let people make their own choices. And chances are, if you live in an environment that is more thoughtful about your health, that you will also start making healthier choices. Mm. Um, but there is a level of protection that we need to to support, you know, our, our communities with completely understandable and um when it comes to the organization when it comes to your future when it comes to raising awareness how can people kind of learn a bit more about what you do and potentially even support what what you're doing here if there's people connecting with your message what how can they find out more about you yeah so so we have um 
essentially everything that I've spoken about, you know, is in some shape or form on our website, you know, in, in the Mental Health Foundation website. But we do engage and a lot to, of social media. And the URL is mentalhealth.org. WK, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, we do engage a lot in social media. That's a good way of uh, getting our latest news and the stuff that we're doing. Um, and another good way to engage is actually through Mental Health Awareness Week, which we've been running since 2001. You know, it's the mm. biggest campaign of its kind in the world. It's quite a big deal. Um, and it's a good way to sort of engage with our messaging and our work, but also do your own thing, you know, around mm. mental health and raising awareness, but also taking action. Um, so I would say, you know, across the board, whatever is easier, I think it's useful to... Um, to engage in different forums. Well, look, I'm I'm sure I'm I'm going to be calling you up in a couple of months and doing this again. But I've got to say a very special to. thank you for coming and doing this. It's oh, I've really real learned pleasure. a lot, and I appreciate your time. Oh, real pleasure, yeah, and looking forward to doing it again. <laughs> pleasure, thank you. <laughs> thank Cheers. you. Brilliant.